The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. To Beyond, an hour-long program of science fiction and fantasy. I am your host, Beverly Prentice. I hope you enjoy the program. If so, please drop a line to beyond3x5 at gmail.com. Karantha Fish by Amal Singh Kalpana was levitating two rivers smooth stones when the news of Uncle Prabhu's illness reached her. The day was humid, and her room smelled of mulberry and cinnamon. Kalpana's hands prickled with sweat as the stones danced around each other like celestial bodies. She'd maintained this motion for the past minute and a half, a two-body arrangement. If she could introduce a third body and simulate a similar arrangement, like planets around a sun, planets around planets, she would be the first of her age to master complex levitation. Her focus was strong, but it shattered when Auntie Vina walked inside, weeping. It was not the day for accomplishments. He has but almost blue, said Auntie Vina, choking back sobs. Nishtha, Kalpana's sister, who was in the kitchen preparing dinner and to whom the room owed the sickly sweet scent, came outside, wiping her hands on a cotton cloth. She cast a disapproving frown at the fallen stones as Kalpana gathered them. Then she held Auntie Vina's hands and asked, Where's Auntie Elda? Is there something we can help with? Prayers, said Auntie Vina. Only prayers can save him now. Kalpana picked up the stones and stood. I have heard the Karanta can heal Baromi's flu. Auntie Vina's sobs ceased. Nishtha gave Kalpana a grim stare. How could you say something like that, said Nishtha. Kalpana would probably get an earful from her later for the tone she had used. The Karantha is a vile sea creature of the deep and the dark. We assurance only eat from the land. And yet we live in a seaside town, mingling with sea folk, said Kalpana sharply. Antavina, I implore you to cast aside your beliefs for once. Antavina let out a heavy sigh. I can, but Elda won't. Not even for Uncle Prabhu, said Kalpana. She wouldn't even do it for herself, said Antivina. The Vedya has given us six days. On the sixth day, Uncle Prabhu's skin would become glass and show his bones hollowing out. 
at midnight on the 7th, his chest would cease to rise and fall. Baromius flew was orderly. There was cruelty in its ravaging, but there was also beauty. Kalpana had read this in the text of Asurin Tales. She didn't want that beauty. Night fell like a cool whisper. The next day, Kalpana practiced the tongue in front of the mirror. Levitation was easy, but the tongue was a higher form of magic. When the tongue was applied on an unsuspecting individual, it snatched their ability to form thoughts, leaving their minds and their words ripe for perusal. If Kalpana could change Auntie Elda's mind, she could save Uncle Prabhu. If Kalpana could slowly curl open the twisted view Auntie Elda held, it would be a small price to pay for a life saved. Kalpana kept her voice down as she practiced. Pitch, curl, snatch. She caught her sister's reflection in the mirror, but continued practicing anyway. Kalpana, I'm going to the Vedya in the next village to ask for Asurin Rakban herbs. I've heard he has concocted a remedy that is useful against the Baromi flu. Kalpana turned toward Nishtha. Her sister's face was marred with lines despite her youth. Nishtha was only two years older than Kalpana, but the way her skin folded around her eyes like creases on an unironed salwar made her look permanently tired. After their mother's passing, Nishtha had assumed the double responsibilities of both a parent and an elder sister. And despite the small gap in their ages, Nishtha never flinched from reminding Kalpana who was the more mature sister. The other Vedyam will be useless, trust me, said Kilpana flatly. Knowing that another reminder was coming, it came, sure as her next heartbeat, and stung her like pincers. And you know better how, said Nishtha. Kalpana didn't respond. Silence crept around the two sisters like a slow plague. You're thinking of using the tongue on Auntie Elda, aren't you? I should have known. Go to sleep, Nishtha, said Kalpana. Maybe when you wake up, you'll see the error of your ways. Mother didn't make six pilgrimages to the Turusa Hill for you to speak this way, Kalpana. For Ilar's sake, do you believe in anything? I believe when a life can be saved, one must not bother with technicalities. Kalpana moved closer to Nishtha, so close that her sister's breath was warm in her face. It's Uncle Prabhu, Nishtha, our Uncle Prabhu. Kalpana, don't be impossible. You can't force someone to break tradition. There has to be another way. You were given the sorcery stores for a reason. You promised not to use that jehever and foulness on our family. And you promised you'd never eat mushroom and rice, said Kalpana. We all break promises all the time.
Nishtha threw her hands in the air. I should never have let you borrow those books from Uncle Prabhu. They're rotting your mind even as we speak. Pitch, curl, snatch. Kapena clenched her fists. Her last modicum of resolve was threatening to shatter. She wanted to use the tongue on her sister at that moment, but controlled herself. Control was an aspect of the tongue. If she fell now, she would fall later, when the actual test came. Uncle Prabhu had given her books and more. He had given her words and stories, blade-sharp songs that stung in the day when remembered petal-soft fables that held her on cold Asura nights. Uncle Prabhu has shown her the trick of disappearing thumb and water becoming honey and the food shriveling to dust and back to sumptuous food. Uncle Prabhu didn't deserve the cold end of Baromi, and for that, Asurian traditions could rot in the watery depths of the Wahik Sea. Besides, you're not even good at the tongue, said Nishtha. You're hardly good at levitation and making objects disappear. And you know better how? Kalpana's voice slunk into cold whispers. Nishtha took a step back from her. Whatever you're going to do, it's, it's wrong. The gods won't forgive you. If the gods won't forgive me for saving a life, then what kind of gods are they? Kalpana turned around and kept practicing. Kalpana stood at the entrance of the fish market rotating a stone in her hand over and over again. She had seen Auntie Elda leave her house, carrying her purse, wearing a white dress, already attired for mourning. Behind her, the house stood desolate, as if harboring an ancient sickness, ready to plunge itself into certain death. To apply the tongue, Kalpana would have to make good conversation sus the pitch of her words, but according to Nishtha, Kalpana was never good at making conversation. She was always sharp, blunt, too much bitter truth in her. Truth people didn't like. She would prove Nishtha wrong for once. Kalpana followed Auntie Elda, taking baby steps in her direction. Elda's steps were uncertain, short strides, then longer ones, as if she was stealing something. But what did Elda have to steal? Kapana was the thief here, ready to steal her aunt's words and mind, so she would relent for once in her life for her husband, for Kalpana's uncle Prabhu. Kalpana saw Auntie Elda hurry across the wet, soapy road and turn right, entering the fish market. Above her, the assurance sky, not quite dark, hung on the periphery of a deep violet. One gibbous moon, half red, rested in space like it didn't belong there. Breadcrumbs of another lost moon lay splintered and splattered across the sky. Auntie Elda had entered the fish market. She wouldn't do that in a million years. Kalpana followed, keeping her frame hidden and low. 
pitch, curl, snatch, the words on the tip of her tongue. A sharp wind hit her, awnings over fruit shops billowed with the salty gusts of the Asuri Sea. Buyers stood on slime-covered pavements clad in water, repelling overalls eager to get a glimpse of the Karantha fish. On the fourth day of the week after sundown, sails of the Karantha, the glowing fish with healing powers, went up like crazy. Fishermen walked a tightrope catching the Karantha. It was almost always a suicide mission. This was why the reason why the fish was the most expensive food item in all of Asura, and a lucrative export to far-off lands like Carmi and even off-planet like the Jehuma Center. Not just anyone could buy the Karantha. Belief systems aside, the fish was expensive. Auntie Elda stood near the fish cellar, her frame rigid, unmoving, about to make a decision. From this distance, Kalpana could sense her reticence, her rage, her shame, the renegade blood in her veins screaming, but she could also sense love, deep, unmoving. Love could rattle those beliefs, couldn't it? Elda won't. Auntie Vina's words swirled on her lips, forming an alien taste. How well did Auntie Vina know Auntie Elda? What shaky grounds were a Surin belief standing on? Auntie Vina was wrong. Auntie Elda was here for the Karantha fish. Kalpana wouldn't have to compel her to lie. She wouldn't have to use the tongue on family. She heaved a sigh of relief and almost smiled. Perhaps she wouldn't have to disappoint Nishtha again. Look, you can't negotiate the price by saying it isn't fresh. This is Karantha for the sake of Ilar. Twenty feet ahead of her, the pot-bellied seller wearing a sweat-stained tunic yelled at Auntie Elda, who had perhaps tried her old haggling trick. Kapana's eyes followed as she moved to another cellar, harried, disappointed. Another, then another, then another. Kalpana watched Auntie Elda struggle the bargain, none of the sellers agreeing to a lower price. Why would they? It was the season of the fish, and tomorrow the Carmi ships would dock on the shores of Asuri, and the prices would Kiss the clouds. The stench of the Karantha itself was unbearable. A foul combination of rotten eggs dipped in steamy vomit. It was all the acids rolling about inside the creature and on the surface of its skin. Kalpana pressed the back of her hand against her mouth as her lunch almost came up. Auntie Elda was pleading with the seller. Pitch, curl, snatch. The words formed on Kalpana's tongue as she approached the first seller. Is it, she heaved from the effort of speaking, is it really three ventons? 
Three Ventons for 100 grams of fish. Prime steak, 15 for one whole fish, and I'll also dip it in Viranga. Kaltana had heard of Viranga, the neutralizing liquid that turned all the poison acids of the fish into salt, but still retained all of its healing qualities. Take it or leave it, child. Kalpana formed her next sentence carefully. I'll give you nine ventons, she said. Give me two whole fish. Are you out of your mind? Eight ventons, Kalpana's voice quivered. What? You just lowered the price. What are you doing? I need it, she said, gauging the seller's voice. High tones, low tones, pitch. She could see it happening. She could feel it inside her bones. Her resolve was firm, her words sharp as the cold southern wind. Seven, she said. Okay, girl, you need to leave right now. One vented for three fish is my final offer, mister. Her mind reached out and held the shape of the words that came from the seller's mouth. It was time for the curl. The seller's face contorted. Snatch. As you say, replied the seller, the word spilling out of him like uncontrolled defecation. His hands moved swiftly, slicing three Karantha fish into steaks and dipping them one by one into the neutralizing liquid Kalpana held his words and his mind the whole time her nerves straining from the effort. Here you go. The seller handed Kalpana the fish, wrapped in a plastic bag. Kalpana paid him a Venton coin, took the bag, and turned around. She hopped, almost skidded, on smooth, wet stones, and sauntered over to the other side of the market. She saw Auntie Elda still desperately haggling, her eyebrows furrowed, her jaw tensed. Kalpana glanced around. From this distance, the fish seller looked almost content, unaware of the wizardry so casually thrown upon him. She finally released her control. The seller's eyes glazed over, then refocused, as if waking from a trance. He then proceeded to do business as per usual. Kalpana smiled. She approached her aunt. Auntie Elda? Elda turned and looked at Kalpana. She had a quizzical frown on her face, an old, tired face, reeling under the weight of expectation. Age lines marred her forehead. Her cheeks were sallow and hanging. Kalpana, what are you doing here? I have no school today, Kalpana lied, so I came here to watch and learn. Learn what? Kalpana darted her eyes around, then she held Auntie Elder's gaze and handed her the plastic bag she was carrying. Three fish, enough for six meals spread over two days, she said, and then stopped, gauging Auntie Elder's reaction. Did she really want to admit she came for the fish? Kalpana had to take her chance. Enough to heal Uncle Prabhu said Kalpana. And just like that, Auntie Elda de-aged. 
Her shoulders straightened and her face flushed. But how? Her voice quivered at the edge of sheer hopefulness. Don't ask, said Kelpana. How much do I owe you? Three stories of old Surrey kings and nine of old Darty, when Uncle heals. Auntie Elda smiled and hugged Kalpana. Ten quiet, hand turns later, drizzle started. When two weeks later Uncle Prabhu's skin became smooth and his eyes dazzled with newfound life, he told Kalpana three stories. In one of them, she was a character who flew across the galaxies, soaring through Westerians as the sought refuge on wasted planets, and gave them hope amidst times of galactic darkness. In the second story, a ship fell in love with a deep-sea whale, and in the end, both were washed ashore. Kapana held his hands and wept at the endings of both. When Kalpana was listening to the third story, the Asuran sky was azure with a hint of saffron kissing the edges. Nishtha was assisting Auntie Elda and Auntie Vina in the other room. Uncle Prabhu ended his tale with a flourish, taking Kalpana's upturned palms in his and blowing on them, a gesture that told Kalpana his stories were now hers completely. Next time I'll tell you about the fallen king of Darshi, the king who lost his voice but ruled for a century, he said. Kalpana touched Uncle Prabhu's feet. Then she heard murmurs outside the room, voices that belonged neither to her sister nor her two aunts. Uncle Prabhu looked up, his temples streaked with worry. Kalpana heard her name called out. The priest was wearing orange-green robes and had a murky paste smeared across his forehead. He was swaying a bronze commando from which smoke was wafting, suffused with the smell of cinnamon and earth. Along with the smoke, the room was filled with the dull chants of the Avresti. The dedicated priests of the Temple of Ilar, housed at the top of the Torusa Hill, their voices magically ensconced inside an ash ball that burned perennially inside the commando. Antivina inhaled the smoke, as did Nishtha. Auntie Elda stood a few paces away, looking at the priest with fear in her eyes. This house has been besmirched, said the priest but there was no malevolence in his tone. His words were repeated in the chants of the Avresti, in the old Asuri tongue. I can purify it only so much with holy smoke, but true purification is farther still. Kalpana expected an accusatory stare from her sister, but none came. All eyes were downcast. Are the gods angry, then? Kalpana asked. The stares came then, from Nishtha, from Auntie Vina, but not from Auntie Elda, whose eyes said so much without saying anything at all. 
I can't presume anything like that, said the priest. The will of the gods is the will of the gods. I am just a messenger for the Avresti. And what's the message? A three-way penance is required, else this house will be ostracized from the Asurin Council. The priest left. The voices of the Avresti hung in the air briefly like the dying smoke from the Camondel, and then faded. It was inevitable, said Auntie Elda, her knees crumbling. I'll have to go atop the Teresa Hill and complete the three-way penance. Keltana ran up to Auntie Elda before the others could react. She cupped the old woman's elbows in her palms and helped her gently but firmly to her feet. No, she said, her voice tinged with determination and only the slightest hint of rage. It's on me. I'll do it. Kalpana, what are you talking about? said Nishtha. It's only fair, said Kalpana. Why must Auntie Elda bear the burden of something she wasn't going to do in the first place? Intention matters, doesn't it? In the end, even if she went for the fish, I was the one who bought it. I was the one who used the tongue. I touched the fish first. She stuck to her faith. The rest, as I have always said, is a mere technicality. The gods don't differentiate between technicalities, said Nishtha, stubbornly. If you fail the three-way penance, both our houses will be severed from the Asurin Council. Do you have any idea what that would bring upon us? Kalpana, you have your entire future ahead of you, said Uncle Prabhu. His voice was soft but heavy. Next year you'll be inducted into the Jevrin Bastion. You must train for that. You don't have to do this. Uncle Prabhu, I'm young, and that's exactly why I'm doing it, said Kalpana. Whatever the penance throws my way, I can take it. Her words danced in the air, the fading tenor of her voice glacially settling in the space between unspoken thoughts and the hushed murmurs of the outside world. On the day Kalpana began her pilgrimage from the base of the Tarosa Hill, the seas roiled and churned, and the season of the Karantha fish came to an end. The ports were closed as a storm warning was declared in Waki. The roads were slick with froth, and the dying throes of tides both high and low. Harsh, unforgiving winds from the west threatened to uproot trees, branches cracking and groaning, twigs and leaves splattering the sky like so many birds. Then came the rain. The first third of the climb was the hardest. Kelpana's feet kept sinking into mud and her walking stick broke in half. As the rain fell in gray sheets all around her, the path became invisible. Her face wet, she soldiered on, blinking away water relentlessly. When her right foot fell hard on a sharp, tear-shaped stone jutting out of the mud, 
Her thigh muscles flared with a searing pain that shot up to her hips. She stopped to rest. For a passing second, she felt like Auntie Elda, thinking the gods were testing her. That's what Auntie would have said, had she agreed to make the perilous climb. But now it was up to Kalpana to prove. To prove that she could make mature decisions, born of empathy for her loved ones. Kalpana's mother had taught both her and Mishtha the tenets of sacrifice and what it meant for those you loved. What tradition truly meant. And no, Kalpana had not ruined any tradition. She had not broken any rule. Yes, she felt rage at the blindness of it, the cruelty of it. But she was also curious. Why were things the way they were? The rains came down harder. She reached inside for the withering stores of Jehevran sorcery and channeled warmth. Immediately, the wetness on her face diminished, and she felt a cozy cloud overtake her body, shielding her from the torrential rain. She continued her journey. Two-thirds of the way, Kalpana saw a mirage on a murky pond. She saw Nishtha laughing at her, chiding her for always being so stubborn in her ways, and she saw her mother and her father and her uncle and aunts sitting around a campfire, sharing tea and stories. Her energy had depleted, and all she wanted was to go back home, to apologize to everyone. She was wrong in thinking that she could correct everything. She would accept her folly, if only she could get a warm bed. But she had to do it for them. And, and so she soldiered on. An hour later, when the magical cloud engulfing her dissipated, she saw sun peeking from behind actual white clouds. The rain had stopped, and the sky looked baby new. In front of Kalpana, a muddy trail ascended all the way up to the summit, to the temple of Ilar, a cracked stone finger pointing to the sky, its base a clenched fist. Stone steps were edged into the face of the mountainside, merging finally with the first marble steps of the temple. The last leg of the climb was steep, but it was meant to be. A final test. Kelpana stumbled and clawed her way to the temple steps. Her knees bruised, her will shattered, but not completely gone. She collapsed in a puddle of limbs on the cool marble and stayed there, breathing softly for a while. Then, from the corner of her eye, she saw naked feet approaching her. She looked up. The kind, gleaming face of an Avresti gazed down upon her. She struggled to her feet, but when she stood up, she only came to the waist of the chosen priestess of the god Ilar. The last time someone came for a penance, the other moon was still intact in the sky, said the Avresti, and you are just a child. What did you do? I thought, 
Kelpana struggled to form words. I, I thought you knew. As an Avresti, I have my eyes everywhere, right from the shore of the Washi to the deserts in the north. Sometimes we tend to miss things. The Karantha, said Kalpana. Then she told the Avresti everything. Kalpana was surprised at the savagery in her own words, the rage at the helplessness of her family in the face of traditions thrust upon them. When Kalpana was finished, the priestess grabbed her arm and ushered her inside the temple fiercely, but also gently. The interior of the temple compound was just a bare, squarish space. Right at the center of the compound simmered the fire that wasn't a fire. Red-gold ribbons swayed and fluttered like tree branches against an absent wind sprouting from the cold marble beneath, the physical manifestation of a god. There was no flame. A wrong has been done, said the priestess. I sense a desperation in you, Kalpana, to prove what you think is just, what you think is right. I think I am, said Kalpana, her throat dry and itchy, and I stand by my decision to use the tongue and to help my uncle survive. Do you know why the Karanta is forbidden to the Asurans? Kalpana shook her head. The priestess sighed. The Karantha is a creature that feeds on unnatural organisms that grow on the Wahi seabed. The original inhabitants of Wahi ate the fish, and it immediately consumed them. Madness came upon them, and they fled the lands, clawing at their faces. The Karantha changes the Asurin body from the inside, irrevocably, because their bodies aren't designed to handle it. While the second generation Asurans understood the transformation, the science got lost in the tales they told. But when the Varanga liquid was invented, it took away all those poisonous properties of the fish, making it palatable for everyone even the Asurans. Yet the myth of the transformation still remained, and the Asurans clung to it obstinately. What about the gods? Gods couldn't care less about what you eat. I must confess, we, the Avresti, are at fault for not caring enough about what goes on down there. We see too much sometimes, too little at others. Relief enveloped Kalpana like a warm embrace. There was, after all, some justice in the world. Kalpana, change will be slow. I must confer with the other Avresti for an exception regarding that Karantha and its consumption. This is a small thing, but even so, it won't find acceptance soon. When you go down... You have my permission to say that you completed the three-way penance. There is, however, one more thing. And what's that? 
you did commit a crime, practicing Jehovah sorcery on an innocent individual. That act was done against his will, even if your intentions were pure. To exercise your choice, you took away another person's. That wasn't taken lightly by the gods. I must ask you for a sacrifice, and that will be your true penance. Keltana closed her eyes and took a deep, cold breath. Overhead, the sky turned white. Nishtha wasn't ready with an I told you so when Kalpana returned with her ability to channel Jehovah sorcery permanently severed and her voice taken away. Instead, she pulled Kalpana into a hug. Both sisters stood on the porch for a moment, stretched to eternity, one cohesive unit. Later, when they broke apart, Kalpana spat out two long strands of her sister's hair that had clung to her lips. Nishtha smiled weakly, then took her hand. When the assorted council eventually came to their house, they didn't come to sever their ties and refuse them food rations and water. Instead, they came to pay their respects to the girl who had spoken to a god. They came to listen to Kalpana utter the Avresti chant, a deep resonant hum of six priests and priestesses. They had come to listen to the girl who had completed the three-way penance while braving a storm. For a whole year, the Avresti chant was the only sound that came out of Kalpana. For the most part, she remained quiet. Quiet brought about solitude, and solitude brought about perspective. Perspective soon gave way to understanding. Her voice came back a year later, on a bright morning at the cusp of the Karantha season, when the Wahi seashore was once again beginning to plunge itself into madness. The first word she spoke was the name of her sister, while she was preparing the morning tea. Nishtha came into the living room, her eyes brimming with happiness. Oh, my dear child, you did it, Nishtha said, her voice taking the grave, happy, sad tenor of their mother. It was a day of celebrations. Uncle Prabhu, Auntie Elda, and Auntie Vina spent the evening at Kalpana's place eating a nice brindle potato curry simmered in spicy tomatoes, along with fragrant coriander rice, listening to Kalpana narrate her encounter with the Avrestri in her own words at last. When Kalprana was done, it was Auntie Elda who spoke first. Kalpana, you are so brave, she said, her voice choking up. How will you go to the Jeverin rest station now? Your sorcery stores have all been taken away by the gods. Kalpana let out a sigh. I don't want to anymore, she said. I'd much rather remain here and help the Asurans. Maybe one day become a part of the council itself. It's what Mother wanted, after all. She looked at Nishtha who had an inscrutable expression on her face. 
but Kalpana could tell Nishva didn't feel like an elder sister. They were equals now, forever, in heart and in mind. I feel it's partly my fault, said Uncle Prabhu after a while, his voice a low whisper. If only I had been a little more careful on my travels, I wouldn't have contracted the Baromi. None of this would ever have happened. No, uncle, said Keltana softly. The world is only richer because you are in it. Keltana took her uncle's palms and blew gently on them. Her stories were his now. Uncle Prabhu's eyes brimmed with tears that refused to fall. Then he smiled and shared a story of laughter and longing. When he finished, silence brewed around the group. A gentle silence of a shared tragedy and of a shared history. The pre-trained silence of the Wahi Shore. The silence of the sky before dawn. The silence of the sky before the first chirp of a bird, the silence of the land before the first footfall. Homesick by H.A.B. Wilt An excerpt from NASA's Oral History Project An interview with astronaut Nyla Blakeman this interview was conducted in Miss Blakeman's home in Asheville, North Carolina. It has been edited for length and clarity. Interviewer, can you tell me about your last mission? Blakeman, the last mission? I guess that is the memorable one, although not for what actually happened during it. You already know all of this, but for the sake of the reader... We didn't realize the chain reaction had begun until it was too late. Space debris had been building up in orbit for decades, defunct satellites from the Cold War, and jagged clouds of metal from foolish anti-satellite missile tests. In the years before it happened, some companies developed ways to move old satellites into higher graveyard orbits, where they couldn't cause problems, NASA had even funded innovation grants for space providers to start cleaning up. We had a few close calls, a couple of near misses, but we were aware of the problem, right? We were doing better debris mitigation analysis before launches. We were deorbiting satellites within a few years of finishing their missions, and the Defense Department was tracking everything bigger than a dime. Nobody really thought Kessler Syndrome was around the corner or that we wouldn't see it coming. Interviewer. But it had already started. Blakeman. Irrevocably. I was a botanist on the 7th Mars mission. It sounds more exciting than it was. Nobody really puts the seventh mission in the history books. Beyond a cursory mention that we arrived there and later became the last ones to make it back. Astronauts have already found the monumental stuff, water deep under the surface and ancient fossils of bacteria, 
by the time our mission landed. My job was to keep the modified bamboo and corn crops growing in the greenhouses. We were aiming for a generation that might be able to live in that planet's atmosphere one day when it was thicker. The corn wasn't doing too well when I was there, but the bamboo seemed hardy enough. The engineers had tried a few different strains. I wondered if any of them are still growing. On the way back, maybe a month or two out, Houston checked in to let us know an old offline Russian satellite had drifted into the path of one of the satellite mega-constellations. I still don't know how they missed it. If the Pentagon was supposed to be monitoring everything, I'm convinced some a-hole who was supposed to flag it wanted to stop the space program and ignored it, not quite realizing the societal disruption and stagnation they were signing all of humanity up for. The congressional inquiries didn't find any smoking gun. They claim it just slipped through somehow. Either way, it was bedlam. We always used to hear that space is big, that we really can't conceive of how far various objects are from each other in that vastness. Most orbits we were using were spread out enough that those graphics showing how congested it was up there weren't telling the whole story. But with debris traveling in all directions, faster than bullets fired from a gun, and with more man-made objects in space than ever before, the distance was hardly insurmountable. The damage was exponential. It seemed at first like they could contain it to that satellite constellation by rerouting the ones that were still maneuverable, but other orbital paths were quickly contaminated. Watching it unfold, it almost felt deliberate, like the debris cloud was systematically hunting down everything they had thrown up there to fuel it. We were hit by some debris when we landed, but we got lucky. A meter of warped metal punched a hole through the payload bay, but it was sealed off from the life support systems, and we weren't carrying anything particularly important. Beyond that, the whole craft was covered in fine dust. A few surface-level pockmarks didn't make it far enough to kill any of us or wreak havoc on the controls. We made it, the last ones to return. We weren't the last ones to leave. The poor folks who went to mine that asteroid were. God rest their souls. Interviewer. How did you feel when you landed? Blakeman. Sad, really. I should have been grateful, but it felt like the end of so much we had worked for. I miss space travel. I'd done a few stints on the space station and a couple trips to the moon and back before we set off for Mars. It was breathtaking every time. Other people can lose their minds out there. I felt truly alive. I don't know if it's because I've always liked the feeling of loneliness, but I'm sure that made it easier for me. Space is lonely. It's so lonely you feel closer to whoever made all of it than when you're anywhere else. 
I won't bore you with poetic descriptions of the sea of stars or the velvety darkness of it, but it was so powerful to experience. When I was up there, it made me feel like I, and all of humanity, had a clear purpose to explore, to go as far and to discover as much of the universe as we could. I'm almost jealous of the folks still up there on the moon. Their supplies will last, what, another five years? Maybe they can stretch them for a bit longer. That's barring some kind of disaster, which is always possible in space. There are dead men walking, but there are our last true explorers for a long time. Interviewer. Does anything stick with you from that return trip? You knew it would probably be your last time in space. Blakeman. I'll never forget what my commander said to us on the way down. When was tough, almost emotionless the whole time I knew her. But the day we landed, some cracks started to peek through. We knew even then the implications of the debris cloud. It wouldn't be much longer than we'd be able to send anything up without it getting torn to shreds. She told us we would have to remember what it was like to explore, that we would have to tell everyone we could, so they would remember it too that we would need to record the methods and tools we used, all of our combined wisdom from a century of being a space-bearing space civilization, and store it somewhere safe for those who would come after us. Without a common goal to travel into the unknown and the ability to do so, when said, I remember her voice cracking at that point, our society would have to fight the momentum to take a step backward, away from being people and toward being beasts. Interviewer. Beasts? Blakeman. I agree with most of what you said, but not that last part. It might have resonated with me at the time, but the perceived truth behind it has faded the longer it's been. And the longer I've watched us try to recover from all of this, the idea that it's our job to keep the dream of discovering the cosmos alive is probably grandiose in hindsight, even though I know you're trying to do your own part in that by conducting this interview. I think it's noble and helpful, but maybe not as urgent as when thought. We have dreamt of the stars since before we could write. We have imagined what might be out there, what it might mean since we started walking on two legs. Just because we're planet-bound for a few centuries, maybe more, maybe less, doesn't mean that we'll lose that impulse. We'll have another chance someday. And if there are still humans walking the earth when the opportunity comes, I know they'll seize it.